for tuning into Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Our guest today is Keshav Kirupa Dinakaran. He is a twice Guinness record holder for solving the Rubik's Cube in the fastest possible time, which is seven seconds, a record which he created by solving the cube 293 times. He has won the Infosys Science Foundation Award for helping revamp the malnutrition policy and has cycled along the Silk Route, crossing nine countries in 83 days and doing about 4,400 kilometers to promote intercultural understanding. He is 20, comes from a family of coconut farmers in Tamil Nadu and chose not to go to college. Recently, Keshav raised close to three and a half million dollars for his startup, Digital Brain. And this is what he had to say about himself and his Russian co-founder, Dima. We aren't typical Silicon Valley startup founders. We are 20-year-old immigrants from India and Russia who came to the U.S. with coding skills and the dream of building a company. We are both outsiders to Silicon Valley. We didn't go to college. We don't come from families of means. We wanted to come here and build our initial network from the ground up. It's my honor, Keshav, to host you on the Small Big Wins podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Truly appreciate it. Struggle, independence, courage, adventurism, passion, perseverance. At 20, you seem to have the all. And you said you dreamt of building a company. And I assume that is on the backbone of coding. What is the genesis of this ambition? What I realized was that until I was like 10 or 11, uh, I was always surrounded by family and, and people around me who were following a very traditional path. Finish high school, get married, have kids, live on the farm, life moves on. And I thought for a long time, I was going to follow this like traditional path a lot of people in my community would follow. But then when I was 11, I basically stumbled upon like a Rubik's Cube. And I went onto YouTube, got better at solving Rubik's Cubes and figured out there were these competitions. And so I walked into my like first ever Rubik's Cube competition. I was like surrounded by these CEOs and musicians and artists and engineers and doctors and people from so many different backgrounds. I guess that was the first time I realized it doesn't matter like what type of like background you come from. If you really wanted to do something like big, like you can. And, and I guess that's what kicked off everything. Went on to do really well in the Rubik's Cube community, mainly because uh, I just wanted to be surrounded by these people who are just like solving problems and, and doing really big things. And I think that kind of kicked off this interest in, in wanting to build something that impacts like millions, if not billions of people. I'm sure you have answered this before to different forums, but what was the genesis of Rubik's Cube then? So what ended up happening was I was in seventh grade and I think I saw the Rubik's Cube for the first time back when I was like six or seven in, because it was like, it's the world's most popular toy. And then when I was in seventh grade, I'd seen one of my like friends who's now my best friend solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, and I was just like blown away that you could solve one. I didn't know you could solve a Rubik's Cube. I thought it was impossible to do. And then I learned it from him. And I guess that just kicked off everything for me and went on to YouTube and found this whole new world of people that I could interact with online and got in touch with people from all over the world through these Rubik's Cube communities. And, and I think that just kicked off everything for me. Talk to us a little bit about your growing up, your family. Try to tell us some indelible growing up experiences which make you what you are. Yeah, I think I'm fundamentally like motivated by my family as a whole. The truth is that most people in my, my family haven't been to university or most of them are like coconut farmers. And I guess like seeing the same sort of occupation or the same sort of thing being done generation after generation, although initially I didn't know that you could go and do other things. And I think what ended up happening was with Rubik's Cubes and then going on the cycling trip and then now starting a company, I think made me realize that especially with the internet and especially with all of this like amazing technology that's out there, like the playing field is becoming more and more level. And it's like almost, it's almost, it's not 
something you should be like thinking about, especially when, regardless of like where your family or where you're from. And, and I think what ended up happening was because my family came from this like very like traditional kind of path and everybody, uh, including my cousins are following that path. I really wanted to set an example that you can go on to do like many more things and the world will respect you if you choose to do that. And part of the reason why I'm building this company is for my family. I really want to show the community that it doesn't matter that we've been doing the same thing for generations. It's time for change and that we can go ahead and build something that can that can change the world and what's the reaction from the folks down there yeah actually i'm i'm actually very grateful for how my family and my parents took the kinds of things that i did because initially taking risk is obviously in these kind of cases is seen like not the, in the most positive lens but what ended up happening was i think in the end of the day funnily enough i think ruby cube started everything because when we went to these competitions my parents were the, the ones who came with me right and and when they started to meet all these people i think they started to realize that this like 10 11 year old kid was like best friends with a person who was a doctor and, and that just blew their mind and they were like oh my god all these rules that i made up in my head is like just getting thrown out of the window and i think at the same time they started to see seen me like mature very quickly as the human being and and i think that's when they realized that if 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 they continue to let me pursue the things that i wanted to pursue maybe something big or something good can come out of it i think my mom was the one who actually like pushed me to do continue pursuing rubik's cubes not in like in the tiger mom kind of sense it was just like hey should just pursue what you love and and see what happens and that's what i ended up doing and then that led to me being able to go to this high school called the united royal college um on a full scholarship when my parents visited campus and met all these people from 75 80 different countries that was the first time they saw they were like oh my god there's so much more to the world and like you know keshav has such a place in this community and maybe if we leave him to do what he wants to do he will continue to do bigger things and the journey is like very much in the beginning but the fact that they never like opposed it i think is the main reason and and the best part of all of this is that like i planted a seed that you can do different things and now my younger sister and ended up going to this high school called think global school which is like a traveling high school for an indian girl from like a town in india to to be able to go to 10 different countries right now and learn their culture and do high school in that way on a full scholarship to then my younger cousin one of them ended up going to the same school as my sister this other cousin of mine ended up going to uwc like the united world college all of them happening in these years and that was just like that small little like domino that i guess that kicked it off i didn't do anything like after that i i guess i helped my sister apply to these schools my sister ended up apply, helping my cousins apply to these schools and it's just like creating this amazing cycle and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing what they end up doing cuz they're also incredibly ambitious now and it's just such a beautiful thing that it started off isn't it just amazing how things work out and how the yeah. so many disparate thoughts come together just because of this one thing which you did exactly it blows my mind and i i hope to continue doing those like small one little things that kind of have a much bigger impact uh, within my community and and the rest of the rest of the world and that is exactly why i call this small big wins <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> and where do you come from in south india where are your parents which area is the farming in yeah all of the farming happens in uh, a village called ambalapattu the nearest town is tanjavur it has the big temple which is uh, very famous both my parents are in chennai but the rest of my entire extended family is in either in tanjavur or ambalapattu which is where they're from it's like the it's like the southern part of tamil nadu you told me about the united world college you got a scholarship because of rubik's cube is that right okay so I, i don't think i got it because of rubik's cube but it's definitely part of it but when we when i ended up applying i guess this whole rubik's cube community kind of showed me the rest of the world and and then i went into the united world college like kind of application process and and told them what i wanted to do with the world and i guess that kind of uh, put them in a place where they realized that if i wanted to do something i would i put my mind to it then i would do it and and i think that kind of pushed them to let me pursue what i wanted to do and ended up going there So you got introduced or you came to know about the UWC through your Rubik's Cube community? Somewhat. So it was like a tangential kind of opening. Because of Rubik's Cubes, I got introduced to a few people who then led me to this like Facebook group of people who are applying to like colleges in the US. And then someone suddenly had posted about getting into the United World College. And I was like, whoa, this is fascinating. What is this? And I went and Googled it. And then that's basically how I learned about it. Keisha, how do... schools like uwc or think global you spoke about how do they impact you yeah so i think i think the interesting um, bit about uwc is i walked into this like school filled with 16 year olds from 70 different countries 
on top of a hill in the middle of nowhere, wanting to really make a difference in the world. I think that's a very powerful kind of community to be part of. Everybody like united by their like equal mission of wanting to create peace and intercultural understanding and, and sustainability. And so I guess going to the school and realizing that there were people just like me from different communities all across the world, I guess that made me realize that I was not the only one who was going through the same sort of experience. And at the same time, I think it also put, put, it, put me in a place where I realized that if, if I wanted to pursue projects and, and things that I wanted to do, I could always go back to UWC and be like, hey, this is what I'm pursuing. And for example, we ended up building this fire service drone. We had a lot of forest fires because we lived in the middle of a forest. Me and my uh, best friend from high school, we ended up building this like drone that like patrolled around campus and, and detected these forest fires. And, and it was not uh, getting all the parts to build a drone was not something I could afford. And the fact that the school, the moment they heard it, they were like, yeah, we, we can fund it. And being in that kind of environment made the possibility is like endless. And so I think that's where uh, everything kicked off for me. And how did the journey for coding start? Yeah, right now I'm, I'm the CEO of the company. So actually yes. I'm not involved as much in the actual product development at the moment. But uh, a lot of the initial stuff we were building was like when I was like 15 or 16. I just learned like the basics of it from school. And when I came to the US, I ended up going through these things called hackathons. And these hackathons are interesting because they had a lot of prize money. And when I came here first two months or so, I was fine. But then after that, like completely ran out of money. And the way we ended up surviving was just by winning hackathons. Um, and so these hackathons are like building product, a very like quick cycle in a 24 to 48 hour cycle that works. And so uh, doing that like weekend after weekend, I guess just put me in a place where I realized that like you can build things really, really quickly and you know how to hack it together. And that's how, you know, uh, everything kicked off. I would still say that I'm still learning and there's a lot more to do, but I'm glad I have like a very strong technical co-founder who I guess teaches me every day in terms of how to move forward. And uh, how important otherwise do you think Keshav is coding? I think it's becoming like literacy right now. I think the fact that you're able to build something that people can use and give access to millions of people who could potentially access something you build from your room is something that is so incredibly powerful. And so being able to do that is not something that we could do 30, 40 years ago. And I guess learning how to code and, and build things is like fundamental to the future because very famous Mark Andreessen quote, who's like the founder of a very well-known venture capital fund here in the US is software is eating the world. And if you can see any industry today, whether it's real estate or, or insurance or banking, uh, the most traditional industries that people said will never change, haven't changed in a hundred years, are just being rapidly thrown away by, by technology. And so if being part of that revolution, I think is incredibly powerful. And the fundamental to that is learning how to build product and, and coding. So if you have the opportunity to do it, you should do it as soon as you can. And I wonder if you have any thoughts around the fact, I think Indian government put it out in the national education policy that coding will be mandatory from class six onwards. So what do you think about this Keshav? Is that a good idea? So I think, so I went through the Indian education system and I started, I, I learned how to code. At least my first pieces of coding started when I was in, in school, but I really didn't enjoy it as much because I think there's a very like standard kind of curriculum and it stops you from being able to pursue what you really want to do and what you really want to build. And I think this is a fundamental flaw in like the education systems of the world itself. But I think being able to tell somebody, hey, uh, I want to build this game that's like a never-ending game that people can play like Temple Run. If you ask them, um, hey, go build that out, uh, people will be more interested in learning how to code than asking them, hey, find all the odd numbers in this like array, which is what th these are the kind of questions that you know we got. And I think a lot of people were just deterred away from coding because that's what they thought it was. But in reality, the people who I guess like found out that you can build so many more things that you were using, like your Facebooks and Instagrams and everything that you use on a daily like basis that were all like built because of people like us, I guess, like brings in a little more choice and, and a little more uh, option in being able to do that. So uh, fully, you know, support bringing in coding as a mandatory thing to do from sixth grade. I just think like maybe the approach should be a little different. Absolutely. I think it's key what you said, because if the approach ain't right, you would end up uh, making a lot of people frustrated. Yeah, <laughs> which is super unfortunate because education is like meant to be something that's to be done for fun and, and you learn in the process. 
but that's the other way around. You're being put through this uh, kind of system which makes you a machine. And, and unfortunately, uh, it's the reality of not just the education system in India, but all over the world. Kesha, one more question about the Rubik's Cube. So mm-hmm. how much of it became easy for you to get access into doors and uh, become like a pitch kind of thing for you? Good, great question. I feel like any sort of club or any sort of community that I wanted to join that had some sort of like competitive kind of application process or anything like that, Rubik's Cubes came in very, very handy. It's funny because I think when we raised our seed round, I think like approximately 30, 40% of all the meetings I did, I saw the Rubik's Cube. It, it works like magic uh, in some sense. I think our lead investor, Katie from Moxie Ventures, our final meeting was just like socially distanced, masked meeting in her home in, in Palo. Alto and she'd committed to investing in the company and leading the round, but she was like, I want to close this out with a Rubik's cube kind of uh, thing. And so I ended up like solving this Rubik's cube and that ended up being like the post she made on Twitter when she announced that, you know, she was leading our round. So it's super fun. It's been as much as I don't professionally or solve it very competitively anymore. I, th- I don't think I'll ever let go of it. Uh, it's helped me in every possible kind of way. Let me ask you, how did you get to the U.S.? Yeah, as I mentioned, I did this like cycling trip from Europe to Asia, um, passing by 2,500 miles, like around like 4,000 plus kilometers to promote like intercultural understanding, sustainability, and peace. And when we started, we didn't realize, but we were the youngest group to ever cycle across all of these countries. And so the stories and, and things we shared ended up going viral. And, and one of the foundations in the process called the Weir Family Foundation reached out and, and we ended up going to the summit called Three Dot Dash. And it's this summit where people from basically like the 30 most like influential teenage social entrepreneurs come together for a 10-day summit in New York City. And flew me in for this like 10-day summit. I came out here and and I did the 10-day summit, knew I was interested in tech, so came out of the Bay Area for five days. And after I came out here, I was just like absolutely blown away um, by the people and by the community. And so I was just like, what am I doing in India? So I ended up packing my bags at 19 years old and decided to move out here. Didn't know anyone here, but realized if I came out here, maybe something magical could happen. And, and so many people, uh, super grateful that I was able to find the community and the kind of people to support me to be able to do that. And you went there on a regular visa or how did that? Yeah, I mean, initially I came in on a fellowship that I asked my mentor to set up and and ended up coming here for that. And then eventually moved into more of what I'm doing right now. Talking a little about the cycle trip and, Mm -hmm. and that inspiration came from there. Yeah. So what ended up happening was there were two things. One, I think being Sanada by all of these like crazy 16 to 18 year olds, I guess put me in a place where I realized that if I really wanted to live a mission, I could. And at that point, I was just like, absolutely, I still am absolutely in love with the United World College mission, which is like to promote peace and, and understanding and, and create like sustainability in the process and ended up wanting to like really live that mission. And funnily enough, also when I was at UWC, I, I guess I was in a very like unhealthy place. Like I wasn't eating what well, I was eating properly, like a lot of junk food, like boarding school towards the end gets very like tight, especially when you have these like final exams and everything. It's just, you're just like, uh, like working really hard throughout the day. And so you you forget about like your mental health, you forget about your like physical health. And so I was like a very unhealthy kid. And so I really wanted to change that lifestyle. I really dis- disliked the fact that I was uh, overweight and all of these things. And so one of my friends had this like crazy dream of wanting to cycle from like Europe to Asia. And so what I ended up doing was I was like, Hey, why don't we combine this with the, with our love for promoting peace and, and living the mission. And at the same time, I'll be able to work on like my physical health and change that. And so both of those reasons combined together, kicked off the trip, uh, didn't realize how much it would change my life. But when I started both from like, a, from the standpoint of life, as well as from the standpoint of my health, everything came together throughout that trip. And it was just something I will never forget for the rest of my life. Was it physically grueling? Did you prepare beforehand or? Yeah, I thought I prepared enough, but I clearly didn't. It was like a good one and a half month of training, but I ended up like winging it in some sense. I ended up starting the biking trip and and on day four or so, I almost felt like I was paralyzed. It was just like you're cycling hundreds of kilometers every day. I think the maximum we did in one day was 180 kilometers at one point. And going through that every day is just a very physically painful process, especially if you've never done anything like that before. And and uh, it's also like mentally tiring at the same time because you're just like, you can't listen to music. You can't listen to podcasts. You're just like sitting on a bike 
biking through deserts, you're biking through highways, you're biking through places where you traditionally would just be something that, you know, something that just would pass by on a car. And you're going at a much slower pace and just, and, and getting through, it's just a very reflective and beautiful process. But at the same time, I think just putting all of that together, it was, I think it taught me to be a lot more patient. And at the same time, I guess it made me incredibly way more fit than, than I thought I was going to be. So you survived the entire process without any medication, painkillers, you just went on? Yeah, I guess if you're talking about medication, I had a couple of cramps here and there. So we used some sort of muscle relaxant. That was the only thing we used, I think. But apart from that, um, nothing else. The moment you start taking painkillers and these kind of trips, it ruins everything. It was highly recommended we don't uh, remotely touch any of that uh, unless it's like, unless it was like a medical emergency and we didn't have that. So that was, I think that's how we made it through. And this was two of you. So we started as like a four member group and then did parts of it. And then the final like stretch was just me and my friend, Jerry. Okay. And why I ask you about all this is because uh, you mentioned that you would like to do a Kanyakumari to Kashmir trip. (laughs) Yeah. Let's say it was a dream right after I did my cycling trip across the Silk Road. But let's say... Maybe after the cycling trip, I was very excited for a couple of months. Uh, but after that, uh, I realized how much time and effort and, and thought and things that I had to go through to be able to pursue that kind of trip. And after that, multiple other things came up and, and ended up not pursuing it. But uh, never say never. Maybe it could be something I would do in, in the future when things are a little different. Uh, we'll see. Yeah who, yeah, who knows? But you know why I, I brought this up was because I thought I would tell you that I'm going to join you for that trip. I would love, please, please do. That would be awesome. <laughs> okay. And who have been in, particularly once you have gone to the US, you have been in that ecosystem. Who, which people or what have been the biggest influences on you when you're thinking? Yeah, two things. Um, one is the program I did in, in New York called the We Are Family Foundation. It ended up pairing me up with a mentor. His name is Brett Schilke. And Initially, he got paired as a mentor, but he's become family now. So everybody in his like kind of friend group, as well as his partner, everybody's become family to me. By family, I literally stay with them. I literally stayed with them for the first three weeks when I moved here. I see them three, four times a week for dinners. We go on hikes. We had a very long retreat a couple of months ago. And so we're, and I think being with those kind of people, really just without them, this is like four people, it's like Mario, Amit, Lau, and Brett, like all four of them were like the people who truly took care of me. They almost adopted me at that point. And, and I think put me in a place where if, if anything happened, I could just go back and, and I know that I would have like a comfort space. And I think it, from, a, from the standpoint of what I wanted to do and, and pursue and, and from a push point of view, they like really were there for me and are there for me every day. From the point of view of a startup um, and founder perspective, like who's influenced me, I think interestingly enough, the difference is that some of these people I saw on screen on YouTube, people all the way from <laughs> the Bill Gates of the world to some of the more like recent big founders, Raul Vora and, and some of these Apurva Mehta at like Instacart and all these people, I think put me in a place where uh, I realized that I could see them on screen, but I, got, I could also have the opportunity to meet them in person. And so that's what ended up happening. I, I basically hustled my way through, tried to meet everybody. So I ended up cold emailing at hundreds of people. First couple of first couple of months just had these kind of like coffee chats for the first two or three people every day. And I would ask them to introduce me to the people, person who you think I should meet. And they would introduce me to a few more people. And, and that kind of just opened up this like whole big network of people that, that I didn't know. And, and slowly right now, I think, especially, especially now, I think being able to get in front of anybody has become a lot, lot, lot more easier because of this like group. And Silicon Valley is, is also like a bubble. It's everybody knows everybody once you've like hurt, hurt, hit like a certain threshold. So it's like at least like a two, like a one or two degree connection away. And so uh, it's become uh, incredibly life-changing because whatever issue I have, I know I can consult with the best person uh, in the world for that, at least in this region. And, and that's just been a very life-changing kind of point for us. And, and that's how like, we're building the company as well. And why do you think Silicon Valley is what it is? Why is this chemistry so exuberant, always so positive over there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are still trying to analyze why Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley. But I think the sheer fact that 
Silicon Valley has this kind of almost like a brand that like the most ambitious people in the world and some of the biggest companies in the world were born here makes people who are in the same sort of headspace to also be here. And so I wouldn't have come here if I didn't know about the crazy things that were happening here and the people I met. A lot of mine happened by chance, but I'm sure a lot of people came here by with very strong intentions of coming here. And the fact that all of these like incredibly large companies were just like born here out of garages kind of gives that kind of crazy energy. And I guess like being surrounded by people who have that kind of inner energy just puts you in a very optimistic kind of place that the world is like endless. And if you really want to like do something to, to make a change in the world, then you can very much do. But at the same time, there's obviously the other side of it, right? The negative side of it, which is there are lots of problems that have been like funded hundreds of millions of dollars, which are like first world problems, right? Like problems that like dog walking or whatever, right? The fact that also happens is part of Silicon Valley culture. And I think there are pros and cons to both of that. But I personally believe that like the pros outweigh the cons by a huge margin. And as long as you're an individual who kind of makes the most out of that, then that's what matters. And does anything anywhere in the world come close to Silicon Valley? The honest answer to that is there are some incredible hubs that are starting to blow up. I had a short stint in Armenia for one and a half months before I came to the US and that's a booming startup ecosystem. There's Bangalore, obviously, that's like doing incredibly well. Then there's Israel and there's also London and some of these other bigger hubs. And in the US itself, there's Austin and Seattle, which are also like equally incredible places to be in for startups. But I think people are slowly creating their own sorts of Silicon Valley in, in each country. But clearly there's a winner, at least today right now with where we are. But I think it takes generations to replicate that and, and people are slowly getting there. The courage and audacity the willingness to fail which exists. How is that so much different in India compared to Silicon Valley or some of these other hubs? Do you think that's a more of a cultural problem in our country, a stigmatized problem? I think in India, people are definitely starting to become more and more open to failure. I don't think it's false at all. I think definitely there's like a culture of starting to be more accepted. If I'm being very honest, I'm sharing all the highlights of my life. But I feel like yeah, I think there have been very incredibly like lows that, that have come about. And I'll tell you some of them. When I was at when I was at UWC, the goal was to go to the Ivy Leagues of the world, right? To go to Stanford or Harvard or whatever. And it was interesting because as I grew up, I was always told, Keshav, you're, you, you will end up at Harvard no matter what. You have world records. You're like, you've done so many other things. Like you're such a shoe in for all of these schools. The caveat there is I wasn't particularly good at school. So like academically, like I wasn't, I wasn't the, I was on paper, I wasn't the, the smartest kid. And like whenever, throughout, when I grew up, my parents would always receive a report card saying, Keshav asks the most interesting, inquisitive kind of questions and really stirs conversation in class but he always fails all his tests. Why? It was like always like the, the report card my parents would get back. And for the longest time, my parents were very confused. Is this kid like dumb or does he need some sort of other help? And, and so when I applied to these schools, when I was at UWC, I ended up getting rejected from every school I applied to. And that's why I ended up taking a gap year. And in hindsight, it all makes sense. But at that point, like I had like no idea, but the Sure fact that my parents were like, Keshav, it's okay, take a gap year, figure it out, you will, you can apply again next year and push that through. And then I applied next the year after and got a bunch of scholarships at like different schools. But still, I think the fact that they were open to it shows that people are opening up to this idea of failure. And it's like truly changed uh, a lot more than it was, I think, 30 years ago. Because people think if you fail once, there's like a black mark in the past, but I think it's no longer true. If you really want to do something big and then you have to fail, you have to fall on your face like a hundred times. If you don't, there's no point. Even in digital brains journey, there's been so many points where we just like hit our face on the ground. Like it was so hard to pick us back up. But we realized that if we don't pick us back up, then how will we build the, the next like multi-billion dollar company? Like every entrepreneur that we've met talks about the highlights, but when you ask them point blank, hey, what are some of the hardest times in your startup? When you listen to those stories, you, it almost feels like, it almost tells you like, oh my God, what I'm going through is like, it's nothing compared to what they went through at this point. So let's just get through it. And I'm sure if we work hard, we'll get there. And so I think that's how, you know, things started for, for me. And, and I'm glad that the culture is changing. It's definitely progressed a lot quicker in the US, but uh, it's definitely starting to show in countries like ours. So you and Dima, your co-founder, both of you have not done your undergrads. Yes. You did cycling, you did hackathons, and you are right now straight into business. You have raised your funding. 
So do you think you're missing something? Great question. Because I think until earlier this year, I actually had the fear of missing out of college. I was like, I'm missing, I'm like skipping this entire step that people go through. But I think uh, it took a lot of like deep reflection to realize that I'm on a path that I've always wanted to be on. Like this is what I would have done anyway, four years after college. This is what I would have done any, like in the same sort of sense. And even at UWC, I actually never really enjoyed any of my classes per se. Like I enjoyed like the teachers and, and how they were as people. I learned social skills. I learned like how to be like, how to talk, how to like get my way through certain things and hustle and all of those things. But I didn't learn really. I, I don't think like our traditional education system is set up for entrepreneurs. It's unfortunately not set up for most people. It's set up for academics. It's set up for people who want to go into research and academia. And I think it's set up and do well for it. But unfortunately, I don't think it's like it works well for people who want to go to industry or campus. So like I live right off of Stanford campus. And in my first couple of months that I was here, I sneaked into Stanford CS classes. I was like hanging around with Stanford people all, all the time. So I actually had the traditional like college experience without paying for it and not needing to take tests, which was amazing. Right. And being around all of these people made me realize that what I cared about was just like hanging around people. I didn't enjoy even at Stanford, probably the world's best like computer science university, right? The classes were still the same. It didn't feel any different to me, but I think the peers that were there was what made it different. And if I could create that same environment for me, surrounded by people who were the same sort of like peer group, who would push me and, you know, be able to actually help me pursue what I wanted to pursue. Then I realized that I was in a place where I could uh, actually enjoy what I was doing. And it took a while for me to make, have that realization. But once I had that realization, I guess I never looked back because I realized it was the path that I've always wanted to do. And it made sense in hindsight and it didn't make sense in the moment. That's awesome. But you spoke about doing deep reflection on this, realizing this. So this process for you is more of a lone process or you hit out with others when you do this? Yeah, part of it is, I think part of this reflection process should be done alone, I think. It's not because I didn't have people around me, it was because I chose to do it like as an individual. And I think there's a lot of power in being able to do that. And I spend a lot of time just like writing what I feel and, and the things I care about. And at the same time, being surrounded by people who've been through that, for example. So I live in a community hacker house in Palo Alto and I'm surrounded by like people who are running companies, some of them who are like way further ahead than we are, but have been through the traditional college experience of going to Stanford or, and, and some of them are doing PhDs and then dropping out and, and stuff like that. And I guess like being surrounded by those people, I think it came to very clear understanding that for me, it was like, that, that whole reflection process really just made me realize that I saw both sides of the picture. What would have happened if I went through the traditional path of ending up at one of these Ivy League schools versus if I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing. And I guess like at the end of the day, it nailed it for me that I love what I'm doing right now and, and I wouldn't be nowhere else. And, and having, being able to be, have that honest conversation with some of these peers who've become like family to me is just equally uh, important and has been very useful. And you said that our educational system over here in India is not set up for entrepreneurism. What, what should be different over here to bring those elements? Okay, um, I guess like the, uh, the disclaimer is also, I don't think most education systems around the world are set up for it. Maybe there are a few of them that might work, but most of them are not effective. And I think what should be different is the idea of being able to pursue projects that make sense in the real world. For example, the kinds of questions that you get asked on a physics test or the kinds of questions you get asked on math problems, right? Like they're unrealistic things that make no sense in the real world, right? They're just like in, in many ways, like not reflective of what the real world has to offer. And so I think the way that I would look at it differently is almost like, what are you interested, what problem are you interested in solving and go ahead and figure out a way to solve it. And much more of a project-based approach, I think is the way to go to understand what, what the real world actually has to offer and how you can I guess, be set up best for it. Yesterday, I learned about a school called Summit. It's like a charter school network in the Bay Area for low-income students. And they have a partnership with Yale and Stanford and, and all these schools where students go, don't get tested. So they have no tests. And what actually happens is they make them 
basically just pursue projects that are relevant to what they're interested in. So if they're interested in physics, then they make them do experiments. They make them like design everything, make them write down and build a portfolio. They're interested in, in entrepreneurship. They help them start businesses. They, they, they help them get funding, et cetera. And then build a whole portfolio. If, if, and if the student, the idea is for them to go to college, then these colleges that they're partnered with just look at the portfolio and then choose to accept them. And the most interesting statistic that's come out of it is that the, the traditional way of understanding if a high school is successful or not is how many people graduate within a five-year period of going to a university. Like how many the percentage of students that graduate five year, within five years of going to university, the highest in the nation is the summit schools which is just not just purely from getting accepted to these, all these like incredible schools, but the best part is that the fact that they're on a traditional sense, whether, I don't know if that metric is the most effective metric or not, but the fact that kids were able to graduate within five years as the number one school in the States tells you that this is the kind of education that you need to pursue. And I think I'm all in for it. That's what I want to work on for the rest of my life after this kind of startup journey. Cool. Fantastic. And you said that during these times of reflection, you mm-hmm. wrote down. So if writing a habit for you, do you do it every day otherwise? Yeah. So there were phases where I did it every day, like more naturally, but mostly I think I still write like once a week at least, just like reflecting on things that matter to me and then putting my thoughts together. And I think it's just been like immensely helpful to be able to do that because it almost helps ground myself. It tells me a little bit more about like, I always start with saying, Keshav, your family is still in this kind of place, in this kind of position, just because you've done what you've done so far. Not that it's done. There's a lot more. This is just very much the early stages, right? Just because we're getting all of this like media attention to startup funding to all these people who are supporting us on a whole other level doesn't mean that any of the other problems that you truly care about have changed. Right. And so I just start off by, I guess, reminding myself and grounding myself on that every week. At the same time, my mom reminds me all the time too. So it's not really like a problem, but at the same time, it's a, I think it's a good place to think and reflect and make sure that you're, you hold true to who you really are. Like what I really care about is my community back home. What I care about is like being able to give opportunity to people like me who didn't have that before. And I got lucky, but not everybody has that opportunity. And I really want to create that space for people to get more lucky and be able to get these things that I've got the opportunity to be able to pursue. And there's a reason why there's one, one and a half billion, 1.2 billion people in India and we don't have as many Einsteins. We don't have as many Messies of the world. And I think the goal is to create that kind of field to be able to do that. And writing helps me ground where I am and keeps me on track, I guess. So what you just said, that is that your long-term vision or purpose? Yes. Yeah. So I think what I really want to pursue is this startup kind of journey. Startups are just an incredible way of making change and being able to impact like millions and millions of people, if, if not billions. I think what I want to do post this is take that learning and take some of the resources I guess I've gathered in the process and use that to reduce the friction of actual experimental learning and education and giving access to healthcare in, in, in India and in South Asia and in places where it matters way more. I don't want to be the person who donates a building to Stanford. I know I can take that money and put it to use in villages like mine and like really change lives of so many more people. And so I think that's how I look at life and continue doing that. I'm sure when you get to that point and when you start doing that, there will be a lot of support here back from home. Count me in. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Keshav, going back to your cycling journey, mm-hmm. talk to us about a typical day and more than a day, talk to us about a typical night. Great question. Okay, I'll share a story. So what ended up happening was we were in the middle of uh, this cycling journey and we're almost like towards the end actually and we stopped at this like kebab restaurant in in Kazakhstan and we had dinner and the way that we generally stayed at people's like the way that we would stay the night is we'd randomly just go knock on whatever village we stayed in we just go knock on random people's doors and be like hey we're like teenagers we're cycling from these countries can we stay in your house is how we like proposed uh, every night's day and Funnily enough, it worked really well. Like we met so many beautiful human beings, but at the same time gave us a place to stay and the food to eat and everything that came with it. And we stayed this, we had dinner at this kebab restaurant. The kebab restaurant heard our, the restaurant owner heard our story and he was just like, I'm going to clear this entire restaurant out. I'll put a bed here and you guys can just sleep here. I'm like, okay, cool. So we ended up like staying that night in this kebab restaurant and then woke up the next morning and the restaurant owner asked us like, which path are you going to take? 
there was like the you know traditional silk route and then there was the this like newly laid like one belt chinese road that we didn't know about that the kebab shop owner told us maybe we should take because it's 170 kilometers long this this traditional silk road is 280 kilometers long and we decided to just jump on this shorter route because we realized we'd be able to end our journey a lot quicker and one thing that the kebab shop owner like told us that we should be aware of is that we're going to be cycling through the desert. So there's no trees, there's no like water, there's no shops, nothing to stop at. So you should be very careful and you should stock up. We'd done somewhat similar kind of journeys before, like in through the desert. And so we were like, oh, it's fine. I'll be okay. So we ended up like packing a lot of sneakers, a lot of water at 12 PM or so when we, when you've done like about, you know, 70 kilometers or so. So we completely ran out of water. Then we like basically along the way, people who were driving past us, we'd stop them and ask them like, hey, can you give us water? So we just take their water um, and then keep biking. And then around 2 p.m., all the food we had was done. And we were like, okay, cool. It's fine. Like we have six more hours of biking. We'll, get, we'll be fine. But around 4 p.m. for the first time, uh, I started to feel really like dizzy. And I, I told Jerry, hey, we need to stop. And so we stopped. There was like a little shrub on the desert side, I went and put my head and just passed out. And then 20 minutes later, like Jerry, like throws water in my face, wakes me up and he's collected water, food, everything from the people who are passing by. And he's like giving me, and then we look at the temperature and the temperature is like, is it 50 degrees Celsius? And so that, that's when I realized it's like, oh my God, like I'm completely dehydrated. And then, so we just drink as much water as possible. There's like these small snacks that I end up like munching on and start biking again. At around 8.30 or so, I end up like, Basically, we're about like 140 kilometers in of the 170. And we're like, uh, the, the sun is setting. And so we're like, oh, we'll get there two more hours. We'll be fine. We switch on our headlamps and continue biking. Around 10.30 PM, like the uh, funny story here is what ends up happening is we, this seems to be like lightning and thunder. And it's, we're 166 kilometers in. And we're on the border between like Kazakhstan and China. And it's like the biggest border between Kazakhstan and China. So you'd assume that there's going to be a lot of people, but like the frequency of cars passing by us, like changed to like 25 minutes. So every 25 minutes, there'd be a car. And so we were like super confused about what is going on. And so ended up that as we continued biking about 171 kilometers in, we realized that we didn't know where we were because they said it was 170 kilometers. We should have been in China. There was no sign of China. And so it's like, at that point, we didn't know what to do. Basically what ended up happening was we were like 170 uh, kilometers in and there's thunder and rain. And uh, we're like, oh my God, what do we do now? And, and the cars that are passing by, there's basically like very little number of them that are coming at this point. And so we're drenched in the rain, right? We're in the middle of nowhere. Our phones are not working. There's no GPS. And so we end up hanging tight. And, and then about 30 minutes in, these two huge like container trucks come by and we go to the middle of the road and wave our hands or face okay, stop and, and we make them stop. And these two drivers come out um, and we quickly type on Google translate saying, Hey, we're two teenagers cycling from these countries. Can you, can you like take us? Like we're trying to find like the closest like town. Can you drop us off? And so this is like what three, four lines of text. Right? And it was like Google translate translated from English to Russian. And these two drivers look at those four lines of text, look at each other, look at the four lines of text, look at each other for five minutes. We're like, do these guys know, not know how to read? What is going on? And then they start talking to each other in Chinese. And that's what my like partner is. Oh my God, you're Chinese. I'm Chinese too. And they end up like chatting and they realize that we're basically the person who like the kebab shop owner, he told us like the wrong number of kilometers, actually 220 kilometers long, the, the road. And, and so we put our bikes into the container trucks and they go and drop us off at the nearest town, uh, about 45 kilometers or so from the Chinese border. And we walk into this, we walk into this hostel. I go to this uh, receptionist lady and I'm like, hey, I haven't eaten since 10 a.m. Is there like any restaurant around? And she's, it's 12.15, like all in, all in Google Translate and sign language, by the way. She's like, oh, it's 12.15 a.m. What are you saying? I'm like, okay, is there any like, uh, you know, grocery store? And she's like, oh, it's like very late. No, it's not there. And I'm like, okay, I haven't eaten anything since 10.30 a.m. Is there anything we can do? And she's, and I was like, I'm feeling very dizzy and, and, and I feel like I'm going to pass out. And she's, so she's like, give me five minutes. She goes back home and she cooks this like full course meal all the way from like soup to like dessert. And like she comes back and with these two huge plates and she's like, here, you can have this for dinner today. And I, I think that's when I realized that the world is such a beautiful, kind, like incredible place. And, and I think it's just one of those stories, like just one of the hundreds of experiences we had throughout our, our journey. And, and throughout these 80 odd nights, 
You were never refused by someone not to sleep over at their place? So I think there were like one or two where the person just could not accommodate us. Like it was not because they were scared that we were new people. It was just like either there was not enough space. These are villages and these are very small homes, right? An interesting other story is like one of these villages in Kyrgyzstan where we stayed at this person's house. We walked in, they were like, we told them our story and they were like, okay, you can stay here. And they like went and showed us a room. We went and slept that night in that room. But what we didn't realize was that there was only one room in the house. We slept on the bed. We, we had everything. We walked, we were going to leave very early in the morning. So we left it we opened the door at 5 30 AM and we found the entire family, a six member family, two like parents and, and four kids all sleeping on the floor in the hallway. And, and that's when you realize they're just like, it's just, it's such a beautiful kind of, it makes, brings tears to my eyes that first of all, it was bad of us that we didn't know. Second, the second, I think it just tells you like how hospitable people can be. And that's the kind of stories we wanted to tell the world. And that's what we did. And how did you communicate these stories? I think Hitcher Hub. Yeah. So Hitcher Hub was like a place where we wanted to put all these stories together. So initially it was just a blog or uh, a bunch of Facebook posts and we just, all of these Facebook posts went viral. And so a lot of these stories just, you know, got published and got shared a lot. And it was just like beautiful on Instagram, for example. And we collected all those stories and put them together on different kind of websites. And a lot of media also picked those up stories up and just published them on their like newspapers and so. So that's how we did it. Uh, I think there could have been a more effective way to really document our journey. There's a website now called Silk Road Biking dot com where you can actually see all of it right now but all of our like entire journey but still lots more to learn from that in case like other people choose to do it and if we can help in any way absolutely and uh, during this time this journey any life-threatening situations existential Uh, yeah as i told you like the story i mentioned was very like scary because we didn't have food Uh, i was starting to feel like incredibly at a point where i thought i was not gonna I was going to pass out. I did once um, and, and stuck in the middle of a desert is not a fun thing to do when you don't have the clothing for it either. My clothing, like the amount of weight I carried was like three kilograms. It was like two shorts, underwear uh, and jerseys. Uh, that's it. And, and nothing else. And so being stuck at the middle of, in, in, in the middle of a night, like we didn't have tents or anything because we realized that we were just going to stay in people's houses and we'd make it, which is not the smartest choice, but it worked fine. But there were, I think, many other sort of like smaller things that happened. For example, we were denied like crossing the border between Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. And what ended up happening is we had to go back 700 kilometers back to the, back to the capital to actually get our visa stamped and then cross the border to a, through a different way. And so, you know, <laughs> there were definitely moments where things like this. And imagine how it'll throw off our entire schedule. My, my partner, on the other hand, did really well in the college application process. He, and he's at Harvard right now. And, and his, his story was he had to be at home in China on August 12th because his visa interview was that day. And so when things like this, like where you have to go back 700 kilometers just throws off and i think it's his fault too because he shouldn't have the day we landed in china was august 11th and next day he had his visa interview so that's how he planned the trip from day one and so it was not particularly like the smartest decisions because you you can't expect you know to be at the right place at the right time and, and it's, it, it it instilled a sense of discipline but at the same time these kind of moments like really uh, put you in places where where you don't know what to do and definitely an experience of a lifetime Amazing, absolutely amazing and very courageous. And for you, Peshav, what have got reinforced in you from this cycling trip? What values? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I think has constantly been part of, you know, my journey or at least my ethos is that if this is not the time to take risks, then there's no time to take risks. And like you you swing the bat as much as possible. Like you don't want to take, sometimes calculated risks make sense, right? But sometimes you want to take the risks that, don't make sense because those are the ones that kind of could potentially take the big, like big shots that will put you in better places. And the same thing with the company, for example, like, I don't think we would have started the company called Dwight Common or raise all this round if we didn't take that big swing that people thought were like stupid. They didn't think like 20 year olds without college degrees could start a company. Like you're, especially as immigrants, it's a whole different kind of ballgame. And the fact that we were able to figure it out at some point just tells you like, in the end of the day, if something like crazy is there, if you don't take the swing at it, you'll never be able to build something big. And so the same way that at the cycling trip, we, we took very life-threatening risks. Uh, I think I've learned to take more calculated, but at the same time, like risks that 
traditionally people won't take. And so I think I will keep doing that as much as possible for the rest of my life. And I, somebody asked me the other day, this is Mario, who's one of the people who was very close, to, who's very, very close to me, had asked me, he's like, Keshav, I've been asking a lot of older, so you just turned 40. And he'd asked a lot of people who've been past 40, oh, like, what advice do you have for a 40 year old? And he was like, Keshav, I think uh, it'd be nice to get advice from a 20 year old. What do you think? What, what, do you, what advice do you have for a 40 year old? And I think they're just going to become parents. And, and, and so I was like, I think the advice I have is that you should continue to take risks in your life. You shouldn't stop when you're like 40. Uh, maybe you should be a little more thoughtful because you have a family and people to support. But, but I think if you don't take those risks, then life will become very boring. And I think that's like something that I, I would try and keep doing forever. I think someone had summed it up very nicely saying that safety is the biggest risk. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful quote. I, I, will, I will make sure to write it and put it right up above my desk. <laughs> uh, give, send me a tweet when you do that. <laughs> hey, I have read about the story with Incepto. The, it was a, a community house or a hacker house where you and Demi met. If that so Demi and I actually met in a, a hackathon, but we ended up moving into a community hacker house later. Yeah, and that, that's Inceptual. called Inceptual. That is where really, I think, things started brewing for you in terms of the idea which you had in terms of putting this layer over the... Customer support platforms. Yeah. The thing about Incepto is that it wasn't designed to be like anything what it is today. It was just uh, it was just a bunch of people who are interested in tech and were interested in startups, wanted to live together and learn from each other and go through the experience together. I think we got very lucky to learn about Incepto and, and end up moving there. And the interesting bit about Inceptor is that for me and Dima, we were on the younger end of startups, not just in terms of age, but in terms of stage as well. There were two other Series A companies, it was a C stage company. So what we decided to do was just start solving problems that these guys were facing. Interesting story is like collectively, I think our house in the last six months, we've raised over $40 million in like the companies that are in the house itself. And it tells you, I guess, like the kind of people that are around. And it's like this insane, like shared resource. And because we're so close to each other. Anybody we want to connect with, we're able to share those networks and, and not really be around for each other, almost like family really. And so what we decided to do was just start like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just ask what problems these guys are having and just try and build products that, you know, made sense that solve these problems. And so we went through like multiple iterations, probably like tens and tens of products, right? And I guess one thing that stood out to us was the customer service space. And that's how we landed on what we're building today. And how did you get into Incepto? Uh, I was introduced by a friend. I, one of my friends had a birthday party and his birthday, he used to live in Sapporo. And so we decided to go there for the birthday party. And I met all these people and I was like, oh my God, I want to live here. But there was like no openings at that point. And the moment there was an opening, I, I basically jumped on the, jumped on the wagon. Uh, it was like a, it was like a weird, it's like fit. It's more of a fit thing. If they think that you'd fit into the community, then we go through this like small, like interview application process. And if you work well, then they'll bring you in basically. And Keshav, you say that as we dug deeper, we spoke to over 100 plus support heads and agents. And we found that current support systems are heavy, decentralized, take a dozen clicks to perform core actions and lock agents into the suboptimal systems. Now, you're 19, 20 year olds. You're talking to these 100 plus people about uh, customer support systems. How did this process go? How did they take you seriously? Yeah, the easy way to do that is to make sure they don't know that you're a 20 year old. Once you set up the meeting, then it's a lot easier. Also in Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg was running Facebook when he was 19. Evan Spiegel was running Snapchat when he was 19. It kind of tells you that some of the biggest public companies in the world today were built by people my age, right? And so they take you very seriously because the possibility of you building something big and them being in the process of supporting you is a good feeling. And that's just like Silicon Valley ethos, right? I think yeah. it's very different in India or like other countries. And what we do is just cold email a bunch of people. And from there, uh, maybe five, 10% would respond. We'd meet them, talk to them, do this whole discovery call process, and then ask them, hey, can you connect us to some of your customer support friends? And we kept doing that over and over again, over a two week time frame. met over 75 to hundred people in the process and basically learned the exact same problems and ended up building up solution that worked for them. And so that's how we kicked it off. This is why Combinator's number one thing is that you always keep talking to users. So even this week, like I have close to 10 calls, just talking to prospective companies, prospective clients, like people who are 
in the customer support space, even though like we've pretty much like built out a lot of the product. And so that's part of the process is you have to keep talking. You have to keep yourself updated or else your product will go out of date. That's what's happening with all of these companies that we're trying to displace. The fact that they haven't been talking to their users is the main reason why we're building what we're building. And so we're going to keep doing that until we're a public company, until we're a much bigger company, because we realize if we don't do that, then we can't be building something that will actually continue to stay relevant. And so that's how we've thought about us and we will continue to think about us. And do you have some kind of a tangible vision for digital brain today? Yeah, we think like customer support is like the first place that a lot of insights for a lot of the companies come from. So sales, marketing, engineering, product, all of these teams within a company right now are like siloed from each other. They don't really talk to each other. And customer support is like just another part of the company. And people don't actually use the data that they're getting from the customer support queries. Because when you email customer support, it's a particular problem or something that you're facing that's relevant to another team apart from customer support in a company. And the fact that information is not being relayed tells you that there's zero productivity that's coming out of that. And so what we're trying to do is essentially create a platform that basically connects all of these parts of the company all together and help them understand that they can continue to communicate among each other and use these insights to become more productive as a company, to build better product and to truly build a business that makes sense. If some of these larger enterprise companies do that, they are going to stay relevant, right? But the fact that they're not doing it is the reason why a lot of them end up dying. And so the goal for us is to create that almost like single source of truth. And that's where we see like the eventual product going. And in your funding journey, before you met Unshackled, there were three VCs who passed you. And then it clicked with Unshackled. Yeah. So, so what do you think was different there? Something was different with you or something was different with Unshackled? So Unshackled is a very different take on venture capital. Unshackled bets specifically on immigrants and people who don't have visas so they can help you with the immigration process. I think they have a very interesting insight that's wide open that everybody knows, which is that 50% or 55% of all the billion dollar companies across the world or in the US specifically were built by immigrants. But the fact that the amount of money that goes into immigrant founders is way less than a lot of other, a lot of other like traditional ethnicities in the US kind of tells you that it's an unmet need. And so they started to basically form this thesis that they should bet on immigrants, help them figure out their immigration process, uh, have lawyers that deal with it, and you can just focus on the company. And so when we met Unshackled and when we told our story, it just absolutely resonated with them. Because the story that we were telling was that we were a bunch of teenagers, we did cycling, did, did, did Rubik's cubes, lived off of hackathon prize money, and then went on to start a company. That sheer fact that we were able to move across the world at this point and figure things out, I guess I made them realize that if they gave us the money, we'd figure it out. We'd figure out some way to continue doing something. And so when we pitched on Shackle, we were actually building a completely different company, completely different product. And so the way they took the bet was actually a bet on us. They bet on like me and Dima. They were like, if we like fund, these guys will go on to do something proper or whatever. And so that's how they took the bet. And I think Manan and Nitin, who are like the GPs at Unshackled, are people who, first of all, come from immigrant backgrounds and ended up choosing to bet on people like us. And they're very earnest in that process. And I think the fact that they were able to take that bet when nobody else was willing to even write such a small check. There was like the founder of PagerDuty called Bhaskar, who's like a Tamil person who lives in Canada now. He, uh, I emailed him in Tamil and he ended up like writing us our first like $10,000 check. And that kind of, uh, used the first check in. But traditionally, a lot of VC funds just look for signal from other VC funds to invest. But the fact that they realized they were like, if we fund these guys, we'll go on to do big things. Kind of just put us in a place where we were incredibly grateful for them. And so they catalyzed the entire process. And then we went on to then get into Y Combinator. And then after Y Combinator happened, like everything just became a lot more easier for us to raise money. from. And uh, Keshav, what bothers you? What are you paranoid about? Okay, maybe I can just tell you right now. I guess the thing that like still bothering me is, well, right now, I think the, the biggest thing for us is like, continuously building things that actually like people want. And so truly like staying through that to that mission is like very important. And as you scale, as you grow, we want to keep the same sort of like lean methodology that we are doing, which is we build in very quick sprints. Most companies build in three week sprints. We build in three day sprints. And so it's a very different kind of thought process. If you can't build something in three days, don't choose to build it. Or rather we 
dumb it down to three day build processes. And I, as we scale, we just hired our first two people. As we scale, I want to be able to, I guess I keep that ethos in us because we realize that's what uh, matters. And as you bring people in, really getting that ethos into somebody is not the easiest thing to do. And I guess I'm trying to figure out like how to scalably do that and how do we, as we grow and how do we like actually instill that in our first group of people who are joining us and things like that. And so I think that's the biggest thing that like is on top of mind. I don't know if it bothers me per se, but rather it's like something, a challenge that I'm figuring out myself. So now as the CEO, as a leader, what is your main leadership challenge? I think we're still a very small team. So there's very little like leadership challenges we have because we're very, very tight knit. We, we make decisions as a group, certain things like I make decisions, certain things like Dima makes decisions. And it's more from a leadership standpoint, standpoint of view. I think, I think the main thing is to build, build this sense of culture from day one and just learning how to do that is where I think our focus is right now too. And you and Dima got together. And uh, you're getting together both through hackathons and through the common love of coding and building products and hacking. But mm-hmm. how are you building the same chemistry to things like trust and bonding and uh, common vision? Yeah, I think for me and Dima, we come from very similar backgrounds, right? We're both 20-year-old immigrants, right? We've been through the same stuff, don't come from family of means. And we've seen everything like, and I think the fact that we bonded over like the same sort of things put us in a place where we realize we do have our differences, but our primary values are the same, right? The fact that we want to like, show that the rest, show to the rest of our communities and our siblings and our everybody else that the background where you come from doesn't matter is something that's true so much to our internal like selves that it just um, has built this trust over time. And it's not something that happens overnight, right? Like we've been through so much things together. Like we've been through like the last one and a half years was just an, it's just been an absolute roller coaster, right? And the fact that we shared that together, I think just put us in a place where we, we truly believe in each other and, 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 and trust each other. And there are definitely moments where some of these, this trust stuff gets tested. And I think the point of it is to truly have these kind of level three conversations that make it a lot more easier for us to truly understand that the intentions are still right. And sometimes something might've been a misunderstanding or miscommunication. And the moment we have an itch or anything small that's bothering me, for example, about Dima or Dima about me, we have, we've promised each other that we'll have that vulnerable conversation the very same day before going to bed. It's like a marriage kind of relationship, right? That's how you have to treat it. And that's how we've thought about it. And we we know that if we don't do that, then we're losing out on our baby, which is like the company and we don't want to do that. And so that's how we've always built the company. And that's how we will always remain to be that way. Excellent. Excellent. And let me ask you something a little different now. Mm -hmm. What about Bitcoin? What's your take? Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, not like super into the crypto space. So I don't really like, I know the basics of it. I know how it works. I know the, I'm not up to date every day. But I think the idea of a decentralized currency that's not necessarily pegged to an institution is like fundamental to improve financial access for the rest of the world. And I think it's like Bitcoin, I think, or crypto in, in general, I think will change the way we transact and the way we, you know, do things in terms of the, in the financial world. And so I truly believe in the vision of Bitcoin and, and crypto. I think, I think that countries like Venezuela or like countries uh, where, you know, overnight, sometimes 50% of your value of your currency can get thrown out is just mind blowing to me. Imagine like half of your wealth, like going overnight, just like out of the roof because you're part of a country just is not acceptable because politics cannot influence someone's ability to keep or create wealth. And so I think being able to create something that is, is stable enough um, or rather is not associated or pinged or, or pegged to a particular institution, I think is something that will reshape how the unbanked population or people who don't have access to financial products will live on to do. And, and giving access to those people goes back to my mission or like vision of being able to make the playing field more level, right? And, and of every aspect, the financial aspect, I think crypto can be an incredible kind of way to do that. And so I, I truly, I just think, I, I think it takes time, but I think in the next like 15, 20, I don't, maybe I can't predict the number of years, but I think it'll actually become way more mainstream than it is today. And do you read? Do you like to read? Uh, yes, I think, uh, unfortunately, haven't, if I'm being very honest, I unfortunately haven't read a lot in the last uh, month or so, but I, I read a lot in general. Anything favorite, any favorite authors you want to share? 
Yeah, my favorite book of all time is Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. It's probably like the the most I read it uh, before I did my cycling trip, and I think it instilled this sort of uh, thing where it made me realize that like anything. Like his story is just such an incredible story. And for nine years, he, he I don't think they, Nike made any money. And they tried to, he, he ran the store in Portland. And, and now it's like this uh, incredible, you know, uh, company that's changed the world. But at the same time, you should see Phil Knight's like philanthropic efforts. It's just beautiful and so amazing. It's just so inspiring. And so I think it's a tale of uh, entrepreneurship. It's a tale of uh, life. It's a tale of failure. It's a tale of uh, family. And all of that put together is just something uh, that I think no one has written so candidly about in some sense. And I hope I can meet that man one day. Keshav, if there's something that you would like to share more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I think the, I think the thing I generally want to leave with is, is the fact that if, if you're interested in, in doing something, just do it and take big risks and, and take your swings and life will, life will put you in a place regardless of what the outcome of it is. I think it teaches you a lot. And that's how I guess I would think about my life and um, definitely grateful that I have people who are around me to help me support in that kind of vision and, and mission. Keshav, I think it was absolutely wonderful and honor to speak to you. There are so many valuable nuggets you have shared with us today. I want to leave this thought with you. And I forgot where I read this or who wrote it rather. Mm -hmm. But it was a poem. And in that poem, he writes that my son, fill every minute with 60 seconds worth of distant run. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great quote. Those those are my very sincere wishes for you, Keshav. It has been an honor to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Any last words about small big wins? Yeah, I think I'm so grateful that people are starting to recognize and realize that there's a lot more in the world and, and you're truly playing a part in that. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to actually share my story because I think in the end of the day, like being able to share these stories is very important for, there's no point in just keeping it yourself because if you start sharing them then more people also realize that there's opportunity in the world and if you've faced certain sort of disruption it doesn't mean it's the end of the world and if whoever i guess is in my shoes might have been in my shoes a year ago kind of tells you that there's as long as you keep searching for those opportunities they're always going to come and and i think there's a lot more for me to do and a lot more growing and learning for me that i'm i'm doing every day and i, I will keep doing forever but i know that as long as i stay true to my vision and, and my mission of life. I, I, I hope to continue being, being someone who can share these stories and, and maybe inspire a few more people to take the same path. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all the time today. I look forward to being connected to you in the coming times. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.